Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast holding a candle for K.I. Klaxvik's Champions League run that could have been. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. My co-host Karen McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. And the uh, K.I. Klasvig uh, story, um, I think they're still in contention to sort of go into the Europa Conference League or the Europa League. Um, but yeah, we've been robbed of the chance of seeing them in the Champions League. Yeah, they've got a Europa League playoff round on Thursday where they play Tiraspol for the second time. But they unfortunately lost 2-0 to Mulder on the 15th, which means that they will not be in the greatest competition of all. Mm, well, maybe next year. Um, but moving back to a little bit more familiar Yeah, they've pastures. just got to win it. <laughs> yeah, just got to win it. Uh, do the Mourinho thing. Um, but moving to passes a little bit more familiar, um, we are now three game weeks under our belt in the 23-24 Premier League season. Um, and there's been quite a few interesting things that have happened. Um, there are two teams I want to talk to you a little bit about later who, funnily enough, play each other uh, this weekend who have had uh, a slightly bumpy start, although the results have maybe gone their way um, favourably in some occasions, which has led to, for the time being, maybe no alarm bells, uh, at least in the in the halls of power, certainly some of the fans are freaking out um a couple of teams that have done really quite well one of whom again funnily enough uh, just beat the other uh, over the weekend um and of course we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about everton and whether or not this is the year it all finally falls to pieces um but before we move on to everton and their woes i want to start off with that club in east london west ham who have had quite an interesting start to the season obviously they drew with bournemouth 1-1 in the first game um but then they beat Chelsea 3-1, and then yesterday beat the team that were the league's form team up until that game, Brighton 3-1 at the Amex. Given that West Ham were a yeah, team it- <laughs> that a lot of people had sort of going down and were looking at them and going, you know, Christ, they've lost Declan Rice. They were just about safe last season because there were a few other teams worse than them, but they've now lost Declan Rice. You know, how have they bounced back into this form and, and, and look like themselves maybe the form team in the league? They're second place behind Manchester City and they're playing some really good football. They're playing some great football. Um, I think it's, well, I mean, I think the cliche that I would say is that I think all of their good players are just in quite a good vein of, vein of form. Um, you know, the the 3-1 against Brighton, you had the, the striker scoring, Jared Bowen scoring. Um and their new player, James Will-Prowse, who uh, I think is quite good at football. Um, I think that they, <laughs> they've they bedded him in well. He looks good and solid. Um, and yeah, this was an, an incredibly impressive performance, especially when you think about the fact that they only had 19% possession this game. I don't know if you saw that stat. Mm. Um, but still managed to be completely um, competitive throughout and, and challenge and, and clearly, you know, get three goals in at the other end while only conceding one. Um, I don't know whether or not they'll be able to maintain this level of form. I think probably only West Ham know that. They're playing Luton next um, on Friday, but then it's Man City and then Liverpool. Um, and that could be where the, the good run of form early is completely shattered. But for now, it all seems like it's going well. And again, I think it's... It's one of those things where you do sometimes see teams like West Ham have pretty average to poor season and just towards the end of the season, again, still quite uninspired. And sometimes that's a bad sign. And other times it's it's kind of the, the team taking a pause and almost like gathering themselves, 
recognizing that they're not going to get anything from this season. And so maybe coasting a little bit, but then hitting the, you know, hitting the gas straight out the gates for the new season. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's interesting when you look at, I mean, you know, obviously from the perspective of the whole, all of the competitions, Jared Byrne didn't have a bad season last season because he basically won the West Ham's first European trophy for them. Um, so so brilliant in that regard. But his Premier League form last season was a, a real drop-off and he seems to be back to his best this season. Nicol Antonio was someone that the fans and the club both seem to want to see the back of towards the back end of this window and has answered that with had like two goals in three games. And they're even adding more players now. I think there's still talk about maybe Harry Maguire coming over there, who I think, despite these sort of much memeing of Harry Maguire I think in a different system when he doesn't have United fans pelting him <laughs> every week he might look a little bit better I mean we've seen him look half decent for for England at times so I'm not going to say he's going to set the world alight but could do it a little bit better and, and of course um sure, Mamet sure. who's who's just been confirmed so some really good additions on the horizon and also having been completed um you sort of highlighted there the sort of things coming crashing back down to ground when they play Man City and Liverpool. I mean, Man City, yes. Liverpool, I don't know. I mean, it is at Anfield, but <laughs> Liverpool don't let their selves this year. Uh, I still think they probably will win, but yeah, who knows? Maybe it'll be a, a loss to City and then a bounce back against the Scousers. Uh, well, I mean, you say that. They have. Uh, they did just put Newcastle to the sword 2-1 away from home. A real weekend, smash and grab, though, that. Is- a real smash and grab. Nevertheless, no mean feat. Um, and they also beat Bournemouth 3-1, the exact same team that West Ham failed to beat on, on the opening day of the season. Now, I will caveat that, that by saying that uh, the draw against Bournemouth on the first day was the only game of West Ham season so far where they didn't have James Ward-Prowse starting in the midfield. Coincidence? I think, well, given given they got two assists in the second game and a goal in the third game, uh, I would say not coincidence at all. Um, well, look, if West Ham uh, win the Premier League and James Ward-Prowse scores 20 goals and gets 20 assists, maybe he will finally be recognised in the light that you have always recognised him. <laughs> I think, um, look, okay, I'm, I'm obviously being a little bit jokey about it, but, but I do think he's a fantastic player and to move to a better team will allow him to show that more. And we're already seeing a flash of it. It might just be a flash, but we will see. Um, But it's an incredibly impressive set of performances that they've got for themselves. And if they can win this next game, which they probably should against Luton, it's a great start, even if they then go on to to lose to Man City. Because, you know, if you could say to West Ham, from the first five games of the season in which you play City and Chelsea, you could have 10 points. They'd bite your hand off. Um, so regardless, it does seem like sticking with David Moyes was the right idea. It does seem like a lot of these players have had a bit of an off season last year, but then won a big trophy and are coming back into their own in a nice way. I think West Ham are a a good club. It's it's nice to see that they are not reeling from having lost Declan Rice because that can happen. Um, and yeah, yeah, we shall see what this season holds for them. You're right, and it, it, the point you made there about Declan Rice, it is often the case when you have someone who is, you know, a captain of the club, has been there for so many years, has been sort of instrumental to the dressing room, but also on the field. When a player like that leaves, I mean, the most recent example that I would think of is, is obviously the other hundred million pound English player, Jack Grealish, uh, and, and we really saw Aston Villa, despite the fact they also had some quite good additions, kind of struggle to find their feet for a little bit when Jack Grealish had left, just because I think there was there was so much missing beyond just what he brought on the pitch. So the fact that West Ham have managed to respond to Declan Rice leaving this quickly and yes it's a small sample size but the fact they've done that is is 
really quite something. Um, yeah, that, that's true. I think the, the final point I would just say to further your analogy of um, Jack Grealish is that when you talk to Villa fans about how they perceive Jack Grealish, and I think I think you can you can take a healthy chunk of that to mean how the club as a whole perceives Jack Grealish. They will they will tell you they knew he was going to leave. They knew he was a fantastic player, and and bigger teams would come calling. Um, currently bigger, I should say, and you know they were just happy that he played for them as long as he did, and they're happy. You know he'll be a legend, and I think that. My my instinct is that this is the same for Declan Rice at West Ham. And while it is a shame to lose him, it's not something that is going to rock the club to its core. I think it's going to be something that is, is you know, recognised as something that was always going to happen. And yes, you're right, Aston Miller took a little longer, at least it seems, to recover from having lost Jack Grealish. Um, I don't think it's ever going to be something that's like a, a foundational crumbling worry for, for a team like West Ham to lose a player like that. Yeah, I mean, that's there's two sides of the coin, aren't there? Because the one that everyone always talks about, if, if you're a club that is, well, essentially not Real Madrid, <laughs> there's always the chance that someone, some bigger fish is going to come and try and poach your players. And what you want to be able to do in those situations, especially if you are a team like a West Ham, for example, or an Aston Villa, where you don't necessarily have endless money to shell, is that at the very least, you can reinvest those reinvest those funds in a way that you know, at least keeps the team at the same level and ideally kicks you on. Um, and yeah, very, very early doors, but seems like it might be the case at West Ham. Uh, could be a situation where everyone wins. The rarest thing in football. <laughs> it is It is unlikely to happen when two teams take to the take to a, a pitch or indeed a table um, to, to negotiate. Uh, but you're right, it could well be. But let's let's move on. Let's move down to the bottom of the table. There are four teams in the Premier League as it stands with a whopping zero points. Um, of course, Burnley and Luton Town, uh, they have only played two games. So who knows? Maybe one of them would have beaten the other. Who's to say which one that would be and be on a, a very comfortable three points? Um, but looking at those other two teams, I want to look at Everton first because... This is following on from a last season where everything was on fire for Everton. There was, you know, issues with the, you know, chairman, the fans were getting really restless, there were issues with some of the players. The sort of lone sort of <laughs> shining light was Sean Dyche, who has brought like he brought like a little bit of stability, but it was only just about enough to keep them up, but it kept them up nonetheless. Um and they seem to have used their summer and used all that time to basically not put out any of those fires <laughs> and have come back in straight as chaotic or perhaps or even more chaotic as they were last year. Yeah, it's uh it's all looking good for them. Um one of two teams that have lost every single game this season so far. The other being my beloved Sheffield, um, and yeah, it, it's been it's been pretty abject. Um, no goals scored, no clean sheets kept. Um, a four 0 drubbing against a Villa side that really put I think the team in stark contrast. Villa a team on the up, Everton a team on the down, um, and then they they just you know Fulham managed to nab three points with a one nil win away from home. Wolves managed to manage to nab three points with a 1-0 win away from home. And these are games that Everton need to be challenging for, especially that Wolves, Wolves game. Um, you know, that's that's a six-pointer already, I would say, for a team like Everton, and definitely for a team like Wolves. Uh, absolutely. And I would say, maybe not so much for Fulham, but certainly with Wolves, you know, these are teams that 
people are also sort of having the conversation about they might be in the mix to go down. I, I don't think Fulham have been in that conversation, but certainly people have been looking at Fulham with the Mitrovic departure, with a lot of the uncertainty around that sort of coming right into the season um, as maybe not one of the most settled clubs. So the fact that they could go away to Everton and, um, and pick up a win is, is concerning. Even more so, yeah, as, as you mentioned with Wolves, that is a game that Everton should be winning because if they're not winning those kinds of games, you can't imagine a lot of the games that they will win. I, I'd say those two are almost more concerning than when they've played against a, you know, a quite competent up in the up, uh, on the up and up club in Aston Villa. And it's sort of, again, we look at these three games and as much as I love to do my uh, Frank Lampard style extrapolation of points over the whole course of the season, and I've got two later <laughs> for you, um, you know, just by looking at these games, if this is the quality that Everton have and the window's about to close, you really start to wonder where they are going to pick up points. Maybe yes against some of the other teams at the bottom, the Luton Towns, the Sheffield Uniteds, but that's not going to be enough to stay up. And I just think that combined with all the problems off the pitch, on the pitch as well, it's worth saying, you know, DCL came back, immediately out injured again. Um, it's not looking good for Everton. And I, I wonder if, you know, even someone like Jordan Pickford isn't looking as good as he as he sort of looked at times at the back end of last season. I, I, I'm starting to think with Everton, this could be the year. And this is sometimes what happens. If you just about hang on, you're first on the chopping block next season. Um, and they just haven't fixed any of the problems that they had last season. No, they haven't. They haven't at all. Uh, and, it, and it's funny because I feel like, well, you know, three or four years ago, almost exactly this time of the season, we were questioning ourselves again, could this be Everton's year? Um, but the question was around whether or not they were going to make Europe because, they, you know, four or five games in, they were top. Um, that was when Ancelotti was there. Um, they had a really good starting eleven. They were flying. And you could maybe have pointed to some of these problems that that were, were rife in the club then. Uh, and they haven't been addressed, not just from last season, but from, from many years. Um, it seems to be a club that's really struggling from top to bottom. And I do think you can sometimes tell when a club is, is run in, in a way that is not sustainable, is not, is not good, because the performances on the pitch do just have that, that air about them. I don't know if you, you would agree with that, but you can sometimes just really feel like it's all going wrong. Yeah, and that's what it feels like. There's no sort of, a lot of the time when clubs are going, you know, things are going quite poorly at clubs, they'll even be, sometimes it can be sort of just like a young academy player or there's something for the, the fans to latch onto, a little bit of light in the darkness. Um, and maybe that came in the form of the striker they picked up today from Udinese, I don't know if you saw it's Beto, um, who they've sort of, I think they've brought him in uh, quite quite a decent amount of money. Um, so maybe he'll come and sort of change all their fortunes and score the odd goal and, and sort of that'll be the, uh, he's a mm -hmm. big sort of Sean Dyche type striker. But, yeah, it just feels like, certainly from what we're seeing from the fans, that there's there's just despair. That almost, as we're sort of condemning them, there's almost a bit of an acceptance from the fans themselves that like this could be the year. And unfortunately, when you have that, that's often you know a big part of the battle. If the fans aren't backing you to, to, to do it, then you don't have that belief and, and that translates itself into results on the pitch. Yeah, absolutely. And and you talk about um, you know it being abject disaster. They've got a absolutely crucial game coming up, which is against that other team that have lost all three games. They're playing Everton. So they're playing Sheffield um, away from home on Saturday this weekend. And if, if they don't get one point from that, it's, it's surely got to be like 
absolute chaos, alarm bells, everything's on fire. We need to change something immediately. Like, look as quickly as you can into the managerial pool. You know, I think that's that's all hands on deck moment if they lose that but game. That's, but that's the Everton problem, though. I mean, that's the other reason I'm just not confident they'll do it, because they will at some point... I mean, this is a minor tangent, but Sheffield United, for example, looked really good against City on the weekend. And if, based on current showing, you had to put money on one of the two teams to win next week, or this weekend, rather, you'd say Sheffield United. Um, but 100%. I don't think that the solution there is going to be sacking Sean Dyche. Uh, and I think, that, I think that is what Everton will do. And they'll sort of just have this new cycle where they'll probably sack Sean Dyche, rather, um, right after the window's closed. A new manager will come in. They won't have had any time to build their squad. They'll be coming into a squad that is already like full of dissent. Any relationship that's been fostered over the last, I mean, how long has it been there? Six months? Um, we'll have to start from scratch. So that is, and, and that will happen. That, that probably will happen if they lose to Sheffield United this weekend <laughs> as the window slams shut. Um, so, yeah. Uh, we'll see. Maybe they'll turn it around. There's a long, a lot, a lot, a lot of football to be played. So you know, sorry. There's a lot of football to be played left. Um, but yeah, Everton are as confused as I was there. <laughs> I know what you mean. Hey, I'm confused as well. I can't believe I just advocated for the sacking of Sean Dyche. Um, I'm going to need to go and go away and take a long, hard look at myself in the mirror for that one. Um, but it, it's just. It's worrisome. I don't know. Is there anything specific that you would change at Everton? Do you think they need one new player? Will that solve it? Will three new players solve it? Will will shifting formations solve it? Will is there anything on the pitch that can happen, or, or do you think it really just needs a a top down refresher? Maybe going down could be the best thing for them. Maybe. I mean, I, I'm loath to ever say, although I know I made this point last season, I can't remember who about, but I made this point last season that sometimes, it, you know, hypothetically, maybe it could be a good thing sometimes. I am loath to say that unless I'm trying to be <laughs> obtuse for the sake of being obtuse. So yeah, no, it'd be a good thing mm-hmm. for them to go down. Um, I think... <laughs> they, uh, no, <laughs> no, I, I, I think... I, I think basically what they've got to hope for is that they stay up until they get sold. And with the current sort of situation, they've just had that sort of, uh, is it like, it's not MSG Capital, I know that, I'm just it's just that's the way the letters have stayed in my brain, but they just had someone pull out of injecting more capital, so there's loads and loads of problems, but they just need to hope that they can stay up for another season, and in that season they can get a, a buyer who will, you know, be a bit more involved, and mm. <laughs> in, in a positive way at least, um, and, you know, establish a board that will be more involved in a positive way. Um, well, well the other question to put to you, just just very quickly, is that, you know, to, to flip it round, they've got a lot of injuries at the moment. Damari Gray, Dwight McNeil, um, Jack Harrison, Seamus Coleman, Dominic Cavett-Lewin, Alex Awobi, all out at the moment. Is this a problem? You know, are, are Everton really in trouble or is it just that they have a lot of a lot of injuries at the moment and they're struggling? Will, in two months' time, that be significantly alleviated? Perhaps, but if you lose enough games that should be winnable in the meantime, then you can sometimes find yourself in a, sort of a, a quagmire that you can't get out of. And, and and also, I don't think that's the case. I, I do think that, as we saw last season, there are problems that go beyond just the squad. I don't think anyone's playing as well as they can. I think there are some players there who are who are good footballers, but just don't look anywhere near their best because the mood is pretty rancid around there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's none of it looking good. Um, I, I do think that... To completely turn around and say something different to what I said about five minutes ago, I, I personally, if I was in charge of Everton, would keep Sean Dyche. A hundred percent agree with you, and I do think that some of these players coming back from injury will fix 
at least a few of their problems. I think that Everton under Sean Dyche are a completely different team with Dominic Calvert-Lewin in the starting lineup, um, and, and there are enough midfielders in there that are injured as well that if one or two of them can come back, then then they'll be in much better uh, position. Um, you're right that it's obviously not good that they're they're losing this many games, but I do think they have a month or two to turn things around. And I'm I'm giving that a month or two with like Sean Dyche grace almost because he he can do it he has done it and pulled off miracles in the past. Um, I'm not her- like I'm not crazy concerned about them yet, but it's it's none of it looking great. Let's move on uh, away from the humdra the the doom and gloom rather of uh, of Everton Football Club. I want to talk about. Um, some of the refereeing rule changes that have happened this season. We are straight back in, and my blood pressure is already through the roof again at a lot of these refereeing mistakes, uh, all happening quite poorly. I also want to talk a little bit about this sort of Mike Dean thing that's happened um, that's slightly old news by the time we bring around to it, so I don't want to spend too long on it, but just sort of within the context of of the refereeing. Um, there's a lot of stats that have come out now. People have sort of been looking at some of these things about how there's a massive increase in terms of, you know, games per yellow for time-wasting, games per second yellow card, which is sort of things that we knew were going to increase a little bit with these rule changes. Um, But a lot of red cards as well, a lot of big mistakes. We've already had, um, you know, referees go and apologize, go to the dressing room and apologize, but those games are obviously set in stone, those results. Red cards seem to be flying around like mad. (laughs) We've had like eight or nine already this season, which is crazy. Um... It's it's yeah. really cra- like the, these rule changes, and maybe part of it is players adjusting. But it seems like another sort of <laughs> change that the referees have taken on way too gladly to sort of just like dominate games. <laughs> you think it's all some deep dastardly plot so that they can have more of an impact on the match? I don't think it's deep or dastardly. I just think it's uh, you know referees with their sort of big stranglehold on the game and, you know, instead of behaving like stewards of the game, which is a a great position, a position that should be absolutely respected, but also ultimately a position that the ones you who are doing best are the ones you don't really notice. Um, and instead being like, ha ha, I am the star of the game. Wait till you see me do this and that. Um, I mean, did you see this Mike Dean thing, for example? Which one? Mike Dean, well, well, yeah, which one? Because he's now been doubling down. <laughs> That's slightly different to the new rule changes, but it's sort of just a, a part of the wider picture of like how referees, or at least one referee, ex-referee, I should say, uh, acts. But I feel like the fact that he was so sort of glib and talking about that <laughs> indicates that it's uh, it's something that they're all pretty lax about. Uh, although some might say that's he, unfair. He just from feels very protected. Yeah, very protected, but also just like, I mean, this is how these things slip out. If they're always like, oh, you know, oh, I didn't, didn't, didn't want to give my mate any grief on the day. Oh, I didn't want to da 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 Like, that's commonplace. That's how you become so relaxed that you talk about it because you're like, it, in the same way that, oh, this, is, this isn't a great analogy, but you know, you ever have any friends who are big weed smokers <laughs> and they'll sometimes just try and light a joint in a public place and you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, I forgot it was even illegal. <laughs> that's that's what so this is like when it. you do something so it's, it's not a perfect analogy but it's when you do something that's sort of not quite on the straight and narrow <laughs> so often that you almost forget it's you just forget that it's wrong um and, and that's that's sort of what's led to to mike d just like I, everyone was so surprised he admitted it it was just like why have you just told me something like that? but clearly that's their their attitude i think the, i think the the most surprising part about it all for me is that like why is it a bad thing when a, when you tell 
um, a referee to go to the monitor. Like that's not giving your mate a hard time. That's helping him. He'll get so much more of a bollocking as part of a refereeing team that, that like makes more mistakes rather than just being like, oh, by the way, your angle missed this. Go check it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. That That's the strange thing, that it doesn't even really help him long-term. He's just thinking in the moment. It's, it's a complete lack of sort of long-term like consideration. It, it's 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 stunning. It really is completely shocking that, that stuff like this hap- is happening. Um, and I was talking to a friend about, actually, that just the refereeing mistakes have happened so far this season. And it the problem is they're having many more decisions to make. And the problem is, they seem to suck at making decisions. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, this is the thing. This is how it always happens. We, we were talking just two, three weeks ago about how some of these rule changes were really good, about how things like, you know, time-wasting and kicking the ball away and, you know, general being a little shittery was was now being cracked down upon. But all that happens now is that we've seen loads of games influenced by that or, or, or certainly, you know, loads of players receive bookings or marching orders and it, it just seems strange. I and mean, what I would also say is that I think if we're going to be starting to be more lenient on yellow cards, I'm not really sure why this, like, why does that rule about two yellows even exist? You know how you can't appeal a second yellow? You can appeal a red card, but you can't appeal a second yellow. Yeah, that that just seems like a mistake. Like, someone forgot that that could happen. I was watching, um, I was watching the, what was it? I was, uh, it was a Liverpool game, actually, on the weekend. And Trent Alexander-Arnold had already been booked. And then Van Dyke got sent off. And when the, the referee was going with Van Dyke, I was like, genuinely, with my first thought, I was like, he better hope this is a red because at least he had, then he can sort of overturn it rather than if he gets like two yellows. And <laughs> since they want to fly around with him, I mean, he will get a second <laughs> yellow at some point. Yeah, it's it's, it's a bizarre rule um, to have that you just can't... Because it is a red. It's performatively a red. Um, yeah, I, I don't understand why there's this appeal. sort of... this handicap built in i think it literally is just that they see two yellows as being different to two reds uh, and so oh sorry one red (laughs) um and so yeah just just don't haven't thought it through yeah it's a weird one i've never really understood that one um we have already seen a number of players, but my, my amnesty thing about Bruno Fernandes is uh, is already there. He's already been booked once for uh, going up to talk to the referee, despite the fact that he is the captain of Manchester United. So I think, like, if anyone's going to talk to the ref or something, but uh, hey, maybe it's one of those. I think it depends uh, what he hey, says. He's a character thing, huh? I think it depends what he says. <laughs> well, that's certainly true. Um, but we've seen a lot of players it's funny now because everyone's sort of everyone's had an incident now where it's like this whole new thing of players are really oh sorry fans I should say are really rabid about players asking for yellow cards now because everyone's sort of had an incident where the the new rules have bitten them already (laughs) so you're seeing it even over the Mm -hmm. the weekend this last weekend sort of watching it in the pub with friends everyone's like he just asked for a yellow card book him (laughs) it is refreshing that I feel like the entire footballing community has come together behind one shared goal which is please god can we improve the refereeing we hate the refereeing yeah well everyone agrees everyone agrees and yet we go in season after season and it's the same old thing um even after these sort of crazy admissions um 
Anyway, I don't want to harp on that for too long. I just wanted to get some some early thoughts from you on these on these rule changes because uh, we've uh, we said they were very good a few weeks ago and they've already been implemented quite badly, uh, much like VAR in the Premier League. Um, but enough of that for uh, right now. Let's move into a bit of useless trivia. I have got one for you about Chelsea. So in Luton's game with Chelsea last week um, over the weekend. They had as many starters as Chelsea did from Chelsea's Club World Cup winning squad back in February 2022. <laughs> talk, talk about turnover at Chelsea Football Club, eh? <laughs> I love that. That's brilliant. Those those two are, of course, uh, so, Ross Barkley and Thiago Silva. So no one else. No one else from that Chelsea uh, World Cup winning squad uh, survived the cut and made it to uh, made it through to, to now. From last year. <laughs> yeah, Feb, Feb 2022. It's crazy, right? That's actually brilliant. It, it's it's horrible, but it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, I love that. Well, uh, I have I have a stat that you're not going to like. I think might might well instill some fear in you, um, which was that uh, I saw a little thing about Manchester City players returning from the summer break. <laughs> Would you be surprised and indeed terrified to know that Erling Haaland has grown a centimetre over the summer. Jesus Christ. <laughs> He's even taller, Cam. <laughs> Good Lord. He looks as fearsome as that. Although, he, he looks as fearsome as ever. Although, he, he... I mean, everyone has an off day, doesn't it? He sort of had what, for him, is an off day. He still scored against Sheffield United over the weekend. Um, that was quite an interesting game. Um, and just generally, I mean, City, City... Don't look better or worse I wouldn't say but they definitely look different they seem to have changed a little bit to you know how last season at the start they were winning a lot of games to one or something they weren't ever winning a game like one nil or two nil they're always winning like four one uh three one much to my uh much to my yeah. anger in fantasy football if I had, I had any of their defenders but now they seem to have sort of done it a little bit differently I know they've just conceded one goal to Sheffield United but they looked much tighter at the back and they looked certainly very good at the back in their first two games as well one of which was against Newcastle um, and if you're showing them up at defensive prowess you're doing well yeah no absolutely um, I think that the addition of Guardiol seems to have been a pretty good signing um, Kovacic maybe Maybe a little bit more defensively inclined than someone like Ilkay Gundogan in terms of um, you know sticking sticking to his role in the centre a little bit more. Gundogan obviously, to great effect, drifted forwards, um, but Kovacic does not seem to have done that quite so much. Uh, and, and yeah, it seems to be having good results. It is it's cool because I think you could say this about City for the last few years. Definitely last year where they changed tactics fairly significantly halfway through the season um, and adopted some of, of what they saw going on at Brighton. Um, Pep Guardiola seems to be constantly changing and tweaking the the team. And obviously we, we mock him for that as the tinkerer, but also it's cool to see the tactics shifting and not just like, oh, should I bring this player on for this player? Should I do this? Should I do that? It's also... You know, it's a shifting team and it's it's a constantly evolving team getting better, I think, overall. Um, we'll see how they fare by the end of the season. But yeah, it, it's it's a good sign for City that they're not standing still because that always is, is what what is your undoing. Yeah, and it remains to be seen, but it, it's funny because when I was sort of trying to play devil's advocate at the start of the season about them winning, which they obviously will, like the two bits that you would latch onto are 
you know, the, the leaving players. So someone like, for example, Anilke Gundogan, but he has quite annoyingly been replaced very well by Kovacic so far, who I think has been played, has done quite well. There's been a bit of a bit of an opinion divider uh, on his performance so far, but I think he's been brilliant, um, personally. And then also the fact that they've lost Kevin De Bruyne and Julian Alvarez has sort of stepped in in the sort of nine and a half role and, and looked perfectly good in there as well. Phil Foden's kicked on with the, with the sort of departure of Riyad Mahrez. They've just not really missed a beat. No, they haven't. It's frightening. Um, and yeah, you're right. You you almost um, well. I think I think everyone at this point is looking for City to to make mistakes. And as fun as it is to watch them with their free flowing, impressive football, uh, it's also quite annoying if they're just going to keep winning everything always. Um, so yeah, I definitely was hoping that one or two of these things um, would have an impact. But I'm pretty sure I did say at the start of the season that I didn't think Kovacic would lose a single minute uh, like of of good form. I thought he would immediately come in and play well, and and that unfortunately has proved to be the case. That he has, that he has. Actually, so so on on City. I know this is already a tangent from what's on the uh, on the agenda, but I want to I want to launch a tangent from this tangent. Um, I heard a no, rumor please. this last week. Um, I can't tell you who it's from, but uh, I don't know how credible it is. But um, <laughs> I've heard that apparently there has been at least one voice uh, at uh, in the halls of power. Uh, in the Premier League that is not happy with how dominant Manchester City is. And they're sort of concerned about the Premier League becoming another, you know, Bundesliga, Liga and Farmers League type thing. Um, and the suggestion is that there could be a proposal to change the league format from how it is now to sort of a, a similar to like an American sports league or, or similar, I suppose, to the championship, less the two teams that win in that it would be a regular season and then the top four teams would go into a playoff at the end of the year, um, which is hilarious because I don't know how that would stop City winning. <laughs> they would just win the playoffs every year as well. Uh, and also, I love that the Premier League, who are the organisation <laughs> that have 115 charges open against Manchester City, are like, hmm, should we work on pursuing those? No, let's reinvent the entire system around City if, if, uh, if they keep winning. If indeed all of this is true, it is just uh, an unsubstantiated rumour. However, I'm laying it down now so that if and when it happens, you can say I told you first. That's, uh, yeah, wow, okay. That is an interesting aside uh, to have mentioned. Um, you're right, it does seem a little counterintuitive that maybe they wouldn't just address what seems to be the problem, which is that they're spending way more money than everyone else and, and doing better. Um, although not everyone else. I think Chelsea could probably give them a, a good run for their money. And that, that phrasing seems apt. Um, but yeah, I am confused by that uh, as much as you are. I probably wouldn't want a rule change in that regard, even if it might be quite fun to see a semi-finals and a final of the Premier League. But then, uh, uh, yeah, the f- I don't, it sounds horribly American, doesn't it? We're going to go watch the final of the Premier League. I don't like that at all. No, I, I don't like it at all either. I, I also like that there's a difference between league format and cup format. It's what makes the cup so exciting. It's also what makes the league so exciting. Like so exciting when you get to the like that thing at the final day of the season, and it's like, oh, it could, the, when, on the occasions it happens when it can be decided over ninety minutes. It'd be a bit boring if you got that stripped away so that you could have a final. Like, like you know what I mean? It's nice when you have sort of like two concurrent games, and you're sort of like, oh, like oh, what's happening in this game? Oh, what's happening in this game? Oh, it's been a goal in this game. Oh, the other team have got to respond. You got fans in the stadium. Whereas if you had like a a final, I think I, I think that'd be a lot. Less exciting because we've already got multiple finals. Yeah, I'm. I'm with you. I'm with you. 
Um, I mean, do you think that Man City have completely outstripped the dominance of someone like Manchester United 15 years ago? Um, it's it's hard to say because I think what what you're doing is you're comparing two teams at two very different times. Like some like and depending on which side of Manchester you're from, some will say, "Well, you know, Manchester United did this, and they were playing against you know that Mourinho's Chelsea, who were impossible to score against, and the Arsenal Invincibles, and even then, United were still winning two out of every three titles, whereas you know City are doing this, this, and then other people go, "Well, the money is much more similar these days, even if City have had such and such, then Chelsea are spending a bit." So the the, the real answer is I don't know. Um, it's it's quite hard to say if they've outstripped Manchester United as yet, but if they keep doing what they're doing for like honestly two or three more years, then yeah, they will have. Um, I suppose the question is, you know, how close are the next team I want to talk about, um, which is Arsenal, of course, last team second place. How close are they to picking up the mantle? If indeed they even are still the second best team in the league, um, they have started the season in quite strange fashion. Um, they won their first two games and drew over the last weekend with Fulham, um, but seem to have changed a lot of what made them good last season. They seem to have abandoned a lot of the the, the big sort of combinations in the squad. Um, essentially, uh, for those who haven't been uh, watching keenly, um, Arsenal have started this season with Thomas Partey at right back, Ben White at centre back, and Gabriel on the bench, um, and then a midfield three of uh, Declan Rice, Kai Havertz, and Martin Erdegaard. What's a little bit strange about this is that it has broken up a lot of what made Arsenal as a team sing last season. Um, a lot of Arsenal's most dangerous attacks last year came as a result of the combination down the right side of Ben White, Martin Odegaard and Pakaya Saka, uh, and that's now been taken out. Uh, and we also saw Arsenal sort of crumbling at the end of the season corresponded almost directly with William Saliba coming out of the team. Uh, he is still in the team, but his partnership with Gabriel is, is what made that so strong, not just Saliba himself. Uh, and that's also been broken up as well. Um, on the face of it, you might say that Arsenal's first three games have not been too bad. They got seven points from nine, which if you extrapolate that over the course of a 38-game season, equals 88 points, which is pretty good. Um <laughs> However, <laughs> I would suggest that in all three of these games, they were perhaps lucky to get the points that they did. Um, certainly in the Fulham game over the weekend, they were lucky to maybe even get a point. Yeah, they, they were lucky to get a point. I agree with you there. Um, and fortunate that um, Bassey got a red card towards the end because, um, well, it could, it could even have been that Fulham went and, and nabbed all three. Um, mm. Yeah, it's you're, you're right. It's interesting. I don't really know what um, the, the thinking is for Arteta. Um, the main logics that I can think of are, you know, if you're starting out and you've got a game or two that that really you you should be confident of winning, such as as Forest um, and to an extent Crystal Palace, um, do you use that opportunity to try new things? so that you then later on in the season know if you have or do not have them in the locker if you need them. Um, you know, the other the other thing to mention is maybe that there have been a couple of injuries, like um, new guy Urien Timber immediately getting a knee injury and Takahiro Tomiyasu have, being, being on a red card. Um, so I don't know whether or not the, the decision to put someone like Partey at right back was was like needed. They did have Gabriel on the bench. Um but I think, you know, when someone like Declan Rice comes in, 
he's a player that's too good to not play, but he is coming into a system that was working pretty well. So you kind of have to work out how the jigsaw fits now that you've got this new object. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you ever played any of those games where you like add more bits to try and then you keep trying to, to rework it. This, this like little, little jigsaw piece. Um, I, I'm not describing it very well, but there's this game where you have to like keep trying to add things and then, and then like turn it into a shape. And often when you add one thing, you have to completely reshape the whole thing. Um, and, and that is often the case with a big signing. So my guess is that Arsenal are kind of crystallizing some new plans and, and working out how exactly they fit going forward. So they've also got Kai Havertz and Kai Havertz seems to be a large part of plans. Um, and people like Timber at the back as well. Um, well, well, well Kai Havertz back. seems to be the one that has necessitated this sort of whole rejig because Declan Rice could play and has played as part of a double pivot. Um, I know that Arsenal have liked to sort of have someone step inside, but some of, like from the fullback position to play in that pivot with, with Thomas Partey, he could have been a direct replacement for Thomas Partey, which is what a lot of people thought was going to happen, and certainly what you know some of the interest from Saudi and Thomas Partey looked like it might happen. And there was also a suggestion that he could move forward a little bit and play as a, as a number eight, um, sort of play where Granit Xhaka was playing last season and become a bit more advanced. All positions that I think Declan Rice is talented enough to do um, but instead, they were sort of going with all three of Party Havertz and Declan Rice, which necessarily means that someone else has to miss out. Um, it, it just kind of seems like Arteta is trying to fit in one too many shiny toys. And it's very early doors, so, so we could be completely wrong here. But I think what everyone expected from Arsenal after last season is they were going to mostly add in terms of squad depth and add, you know, so someone like Yuri and Timber was a perfect example of a signing like that. Make a couple of big statement signings to raise the overall level. So Declan Rice is a perfect example of that. Um, but not to sign players that would completely change the way they played after having their best league season in about 20 years. I think the trouble is, you know, do you, if you're Arsenal, right? And a genuine question, actually, maybe, maybe you might like to answer this. Put yourself in Arteta's shoes, Right. You've got the board wanting to the good the good times to keep coming. You've got the fans that are, you know, on cloud nine, and you're looking at your squad, you're about to start the new season. Are you thinking to yourself, we need to build on this and and kind of trying to maintain our second place position? Or do we want to try and and keep dramatically changing with the hope of challenging for first? I suppose that's a that's a question. He's probably looked at it and come to that conclusion, and that's why he's changed it. I think for me, what's confusing is that you know the narrative no, that no, we've heard. I'd like just just quickly, if I may, how how what would you say out of interest? Well, if I had those two options, then obviously I'd choose the one where you're going for first. But I don't necessarily agree with the premise that the only way to challenge for first is to is to change the whole script. Because I think, like the, the whole th- the whole narrative behind Arteta's Arsenal, and, and it has been, and it's why he stayed in so long, despite the fact they finished eighth twice and they finished fifth, and then they finally had a great season last year. Is that it's been this sort of long term building strategy, and it's been trust the process the whole way, trust the process. Arteta's building something, they're sort of building towards something big, and then we we almost sort of got a glimpse of what they were or less than a glimpse they were top of the table for whatever it was 200 and something days so we saw that 
ultimately then that caught up to them and they weren't quite ready there yet. We were told they were ahead of schedule and this is just, you know, we, they were ahead of schedule. That's why they weren't quite ready to do it yet. And then they had all those positives and seemingly in admittedly this quite small sample size so far, they've abandoned that to accommodate a new system. It just seems like, like, why would you build towards something? You've finally got the foundation there and some of the exciting, you know, fancy looking windows and curtains. And now you're demolishing it and going back to square one. What, like, what, how, where's the logic in that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I take your point definitely. I think that I would say that you know they're not they're not making changes in a way that is significantly damaging the output of the team. I mean, they do have seven points from three games, um, and you know, I, I think that I don't mind someone like um, Arteta with a team like Arsenal experimenting at the start of the season. And during a couple of early, of early easy games, um, trying to work out exactly what other plans he could draw on if needed, if that is indeed what he's doing, I, I don't know at the moment. Um, it, it's hard to say, but I, I, what am I saying? I take your point. The wheels aren't coming off, and I don't think we need to imagine that they are yet. It could well be that by next week he returns to to what worked really well for him last season. It could well be that he has a different vision and he thinks it's going to be better. It could well be that he's looked at the the, the stats behind the wins and decided that some of those wins weren't maintainable wins. They they kind of outperformed themselves oh, yeah. and, and it wasn't it wasn't that, you know, where they were wasn't ahead of schedule just because they you know, happened to be playing much better. It could also have just been a bit of a statistical anomaly. Right, um, like a bit. So that, there's a lot of stuff that, that could be happening behind closed doors. The relationship between Arteta and the board could have changed and we would not know. Um, so it's it's hard to say, but for now, you know, I think that if, if I were talking to an Arsenal fan um, and they were worried and upset that Arsenal had played three games, one, two, and drawn one against a good team... Um, because Arteta was making changes, I'd say, slow down, Sonny Jim, it's okay. <laughs> well, let well, I'm sure we'll find out more uh, this weekend, because they played three, you know, solid teams, but not quote-unquote big teams, and maybe that's the reason that they sort of <laughs> altered around a little bit to test in those games. They have got a a big game this weekend, certainly a traditionally big game, uh, against their old rivals, Manchester United. Um, so it'll be interesting there to see if Arsenal go back to what made them strong last season, or if they persist with this new system. But let's talk about the other team in that fixture. Um, because Manchester United, another team, very similarly to Arsenal, who, six points from nine, they lost their only game to Spurs, who, uh, the other team I want to talk about a little bit later, we've got a little bit of a, a sort of chain conversation going on here, um, but mm. lost a, a Spurs side that looked very put together. But again, on the face of it, you might go, six points from nine, that's not the worst thing in the world. You extrapolate that over 38 game season, that's 78 points. Um, <laughs> is your is your maths just much better than I remember, or have you really prepped for this? Uh, no comment. Um <laughs> but again, I think that the, the nature of these results are maybe sort of the the results kind of belie the the, the performances. I would say um, in terms of you know obviously very lucky to get 
three points against Wolves um, when I think even the referees have now admitted that they should have given a penalty against them. Um, very, very late comeback against Nottingham Forest over the weekend as well uh, after a time when they looked like they were they were going to be dropping points at home to, uh, to a new... Oh, sorry, um, not at home, away. No, no, yes, at home to... Um, to, to, to Nottingham Forest, who is sort of one of the teams that people think of as, as, as a bit weaker. Um, your take on how things are going at United at the moment. Cause for concern? Steady ship? Eric Ten Hag's at the wheel? Or the car's on fire? Where, where do you sit with this? I think I would say semi-cause for concern. And and maybe I'm not being entirely consistent with uh, with my logic and my thinking. But yeah, I feel like if we think of Arsenal as being a process of rebuilding, Manchester United are are on that process as well. They're just maybe like a season or two behind. And for them to have been, you know, making changes to their their system, their form and um, you know, the the tactics in their team, um and for it not to be working is I'd say slightly more of more worry. Um, just personally, because I feel like they should be trying to be as as stable and steady as possible. Um, and yeah, it doesn't really seem to be working it in as in as in the way that people thought they would. You know, Anana's come in, he looks good, um, but man you are still conceding. Rashford has not been as blisteringly good as he was last season. Um and yeah, I think I'm a, I'm a little concerned, not massively. Again, it's only three, um, three games in. I, I think probably for Arsenal as much as for Manchester United, this game on the weekend is going to come at a right time to see where they're at. This is this is the narrative derby. Whichever team wins, is like all fears immediately dispelled, and it's actually fine. They just had a bit of a slow start, bits and pieces. Whichever team loses, it's it's all over. Manager must go immediate because these are one, two of the most reactionary fan bases in the league as well. That's true. Um, yeah, I, I just feel like didn't like the way that they conceded two goals so early on to Nottingham Forest. I thought that was a bit of a warning sign. And, 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 and didn't like where... the fact that they... Sorry. No, it's okay. And, and, and another one there where I, I didn't mention it earlier, but the penalty for Bruno Fernandes was very soft indeed. It, it was, yeah. And I don't like the fact that they are having to rely on soft penalties Goals from players like Casemiro and Rafa Varane to win games. Uh, I just think that you know those things aren't sustainable. You need to, you need to be doing more in your games if you're if you want to extrapolate your two wins in three to twenty four wins in thirty eight. <laughs> well, apparently, uh, one thing that might be of importance is that Rasmus Hoyland um, is going to be making his debut against Arsenal on the weekend. Uh, and if there is a club that debut signings love to score against, it is Arsenal. Uh, so, hey. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Um, they do seem to be a statistical anomaly in that regard, at least. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think... Early signs not great for Manchester United. Um, sometimes, you know, the new season comes at a bad time or, or the ending of a season comes at a bad time um, and, and you start to pick up a head of steam and then suddenly you've got to take a break and then try and do it all over again in a month or two's time and, and that doesn't always work. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I think just again with United, though, as we were sort of talking about with Arsenal, there's just a little bit of that tactical confusion. Like playing Marcus Rashford down the middle for the first two games, which doesn't seem to have really worked. Not having an idea who their best 11 is, which, you know, given how much it's not been there forever, but you would hope certainly that, that Ten Hag had a little bit of an idea on that so far. And not getting the most out of, you know, Bruno Fernandes on his day is, is one of the best players in the league, um, but wasn't so hot in the first two games. Oh, maybe it wasn't, was unlucky, but sort of didn't, didn't make as much of an impact as you might usually expect him to. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. Um, yeah, they've they've got some they've got some back to the drawing boarding to do, um, and I think the fewer games they can uh, they can start with Martial up top, the better. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's I think I think if uh, if Hoyland, as much as like Hoyland's a purchase for the future, if he so much as like gets a sniff at goal, Anti Martial will be sent to the shadow realm. Um, let's <laughs> let's talk next about Tottenham, who've done uh, the reverse of these other two teams. Well, the reverse of what Arsenal did, which is uh, draw the first game, then win the uh, second and third. Um, one of those wins more impressive than the other no disrespect to Bournemouth um but certainly best team Manchester United was a bit of a statement uh for Angie Postacoglu I've arrived I'm here and I can beat any of the teams that think they're you know bigger than me in my Aussie ways um which it was very interesting <laughs> it's also interesting to know obviously this is a post Kane Spurs and if we were talking about someone like a Declan Rice or a Jack Grealish leaving a club leaving a bit of a hole both on and off the pitch Mr Spurs himself uh flying off to Bayern you would have thought would have had a massive effect on Spurs. But so far, it almost seems to have had the reverse effect. It almost seems like now that he's not the crutch for to lean on, everyone's sort of trying to raise their game a bit. I mean, Richarlison's been terrible so far, but everyone else has sort of like picked it up a little bit and it's like, okay, we can no longer, you know, rely on Harry Kane to, to score a goal out of nowhere and save us. We've got to get the, get down and, and knuckle down. Yeah, I mean, I think the other part as well is it's probably just refreshing to like have the dance stopped. You know, it must be so draining every summer to have the whole like, will he, won't he? And then he doesn't. And then he comes back and he moans and he like sucks the air out of the room. And you wonder whether or not he's going to turn it all around again. And then he does and he's talismanic, but you wonder whether or not he's going to leave you anytime soon. And I can imagine that that's not the optimal environment to be to be playing in. Um, and it's probably quite nice to have him gone. Which is not to say that he's not been a fantastic servant to the club and a fantastic player, but more, you know, I could imagine if I were a player in that dressing room, breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief for like, well, at least what I know now, like at least we can just crack on. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. And I think not having that sort of spectre and that question mark over your head is definitely quite helpful. I, I do also like, and I'm I'm wary of saying this because I know this is what a lot of people said last season and that all of them turned out to be quite bad. I quite like their business in the transfer window. I think they make quite a few good signings. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think they have done well. I wouldn't say it personally. I found it to be transformatively impressive or even so impressive as to replace Harry Kane. But... I've been wrong before. Lord knows I'll be wrong again. I think I think they're still working on that, though. I, I, I might be wrong, but I think they're after um, Brennan Johnson to replace Harry Kane uh, for the time being, which is obviously, I mean, it's an unenviable task for pretty much any player in world football not called Robert Lewandowski to try and fill Harry Kane's boots. Um, <laughs> or or Eli Harland, I suppose. Yeah, uh, 
I've heard they're going to spend quite a lot of money on him as well. Yeah, fifty million. Um, but then you know, sort of a Premier League striker with uh, with experience. I mean, beyond that though, I, I'm just thinking more sort of. I think James Madison's hit the ground running, which has been great. I think Mickey Van Der Ven's been, been pretty solid. The new keeper uh, Guglielmo Vicario. I hope I've said that correctly. Uh, seems pretty solid. Um, and <laughs> obviously, Destiny Udogi, who they signed last season but sent back out on loan, has made his name to to be in the starting 11 which i don't know everyone thought he definitely would uh to begin with but he's he's come in and he's looked good so far yeah yeah it definitely has um a quick aside a little extra piece of useless trivia for you i think brennan johnson is officially the quickest player in the premier league ah I, 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 that, that is that is a truly useless bit of trivia people always trot out these nonsense charts where it's like oh did you know that per mertzacker actually over 1.2 meters has the fastest sprint speed <laughs> well are you having a go at me for a piece of useless trivia being useless uh, no i'm having a go at the system because it's, it's not even it's not even useless in my mind it's uh <laughs> they, they always come up with these stats and that it'll be some centre-back it, like inevitably it isn't in this occasion but it'll inevitably by the end of the season be some centre-back who I've seen be flat-footed and get left in the dust about a hundred times and they go oh did you know <laughs> the top speed recorded this season was by so-and-so probably when it was falling over well speaking of Tottenham I actually have the, the exact player that you're thinking of who apparently was the quickest player at the club quicker than Gareth Bale at the time do you know what I'm thinking about? Oh, it's going to be Eric Dyer or someone, isn't it? Yunus Kabul. There you go. There you go. I mean, not 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 the slowest man in the world in his in his younger days, but yeah, not not quicker no, than Gareth Bale. The fastest man, legitimately statistically quicker than Gareth Bale. Again, like show me the stats. Tell what, well, why, why don't we measure the stats while you're asleep and I'm running a hundred meter race, and based on those data sets, we'll see who's faster. <laughs> I like the fact that you are comparing yourself to Per Mertesacker in this scenario. I'm, I'm not necessarily comparing myself. I'm just saying it's a, it's a ridiculous. There are always these ridiculous data sets that's like it's over such a short distance, or like <laughs> they've chosen that moment to have the speed camera detect their speed. Or or yeah, it, it, or a lot of the time, it's purely just because it's like <laughs> this is probably the reason why it's a lot of centre backs. It's like centre backs who are running back towards their goal because they've made a shit error where they've been run past, so they have enough time to pick up speed. Just made a mistake. It does seem pretty arbitrary sometimes. I'll, I'll give you that. I think it's 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 one of my admittedly many many footballing pet peeves. <laughs> You're an opinionated man. Would you say? Um, sorry. Back, back to where we were initially, though, before we talk about fast players. Are you liking the look of sure. Spurs? Are you, you know, we've had a lot of sticking our flags in the sand uh, this episode. Um, are you liking Spurs? Are you liking Andrzej Postacoglu? Do you think he's uh, made his name already? I think Spurs look quite good. Um, again, I feel like every single team we're talking about, I just keep thinking, like, it's so early. Um, but... Rupert, 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 don't caveat these things with reason. I want wild, wild like decisions based purely on emotion. I think that the fact that Spurs have managed to have such a good early season is an indication that Postacoglu is exactly the breath of fresh air that they have needed and Harry Kane gone is exactly the catalyst that they've needed to get on and have a good season and finish at the top four. Yeah, I like it. It's, it's, it's a bit like if you are kicked out of your house 
uh, <laughs> all of a sudden, you've got a motivation there to find a new house. And losing Harry Kane is a bit like being kicked out of your nice, warm, safe home, which is having Harry Kane sort of always there to score a late minute, sort of a last minute goal. Um, and now the rest of the Spurs players have gone, oh, shit. No one's no one's here to do that for us anymore. <laughs> Certainly not the chicken man. Uh, so we've got to start getting ourselves in gear. I mean, what I do think about, and this is a very sort of superficial observation, but I, I do like about Ange Postacoglu that he seems to have broken the sort of mould of Spurs manager that they've had for the last like 15, 20 years or so. They seem to have like sure. always alternated between like I mean, certainly the, the recent cycle has been these sort of like superstar ex-Chelsea managers. But prior to that, it was always like a rotating cycle between like European uh, like guy who'd done well with like Severe or something. And then like when that didn't work out, because they were like, oh, we, we were trying to find our own answer to Mourinho. Okay. Before they obviously got the actual Mourinho. Oh, we were trying to find our own answer to like a Mourinho or a Vega, some European sort of whiz who's coming through the rest. Then they sort of alternate back to like a, like an Andrew Villas Burst in that case. And then they'd alternate back to some sort of like boring, plain, like, middle-of-the-road English manager, like a Tim Sherwood. And they'd sort of just go back and forth between that for, for a while. And then they sort of depart from that and went the superstar manager route. And and now they've sort of gone for a, a fourth profile of manager, which is which is none of those, which is Australian guy, uh, which, hey, I, I like that they've changed it up. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he has breathed new life into them. Um, and I think all of those examples that you gave there just like washed up people, you know, um, they're either caretakers or they're over the road, over the hill a little bit. Um, I mean, Mourinho is still a fantastic manager. I stand by that, but couldn't do it at Spurs. Couldn't shake them out of their apathy. Um, and maybe, maybe this man will. Mm. Well, it'll be interesting to see um, what uh, Antipostokoglu does at Spurs. It'll be interesting to see uh, a lot of how these uh, preconceptions have been shattered. I, for one, uh, was shaking in my boots when Aston Villa lost 5-1 to Newcastle in the first game after saying they'd finished fourth, uh, but they've picked up since. Did you know, Rupert, a little bonus use of trivia for you, I mean, we, I'm almost certain we've said this before, but it's still true now, that uh, in 2023, the only team, uh, sorry, other than City, Aston Villa have the most points. In 2023, Aston Villa have the most points. Have the most Premier League points of any team, bar City. That aren't that isn't called Man City. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Mm. That's pretty cool indeed. Um, well, I think probably a good place to end on is just with the question of we talked at the beginning of the season about the the three challenger clubs, and and those clubs being Brighton, Villa, and Fulham. Um, and we kind of had slightly different ideas about how those those teams would would fare. Do you think that Villa are going to finish at the highest of those three? Do you think Brighton still have it, even though um, you know? What do you what do you think? Well, of, of the three of them, Brighton have been the best so far. I mean, they absolutely obliterated teams in their first two games, uh, and they look like they got goals from everywhere. I do still quite like a lot about Villa and. I mean, I think both of them will finish above Fulham. I don't think that's exactly a big shout either, but no, I'm going to stick with Villa. I'm going to stick with my, stick with my Villa guns. Here you going? Villa, Brighton or Fulham? I'm I'm firmly Villa camp. Yeah, I think, um, I actually think I thought Brighton would drop off this season. Um, maybe that's not going to happen just yet, but I think it will happen second half. That's my, that's my cold take. Very interesting. Well, as you say, probably a good place to end it there. Rupert, great to talk to you as always. 
Cam, thank you very much, and thank you to everyone at home for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.